Hi, and welcome to episode 30 of the Untethered Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Eric Armacan, board-certified pediatric dentist, joining us. He is laser-trained and certified and the owner of Dentistry for Children of Northern Virginia with practices in both Fairfax and Herndon, Virginia. He is specialty-trained in tethered oral tissues and a member of the International Affiliation of Tongue-Tie Professionals. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. Well, Eric, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Me too. So let's just jump right in and talk about, you know, your role as a pediatric dentist and working with tethered oral tissues. Can you tell us a little bit about what that looks like in your office? Yeah, so we, um, we see patients from newborn up until typically about 18 to 21, and special needs patients will continue to see into adults on age as long as they're comfortable and they have um, things that are within our scope here. Um, we've, we've been working with some of the local pediatricians and lactation consultants, so we do see some of the early, early ones just for feeding purposes. Um, and typically for dental ones, we're getting most of the referrals around one years old, which is kind of the standard recommendation, but we are seeing them newborn as well, especially if they're potentially in need of a release, um, if there seems to be any feeding issues or, or any developmental issues that they think is a concern. So we, we see them at all ages. We generally have kind of a baseline questionnaire that we ask all our patients who come in, and it kind of touches on a few of the different topics. Some of it is um, based around feeding, speech, airway-related questions, and it kind of guides them based on their age group and where they are. It's just mostly yes and no questionnaires just to for us to see if there's things that they're noticing, and it might cue them into some things they never thought about that we might be of good help for and that they might not think, you know, they're coming to the dentist, but they might not realize that maybe the dentist is trained on some things beyond the teeth, which is, can be a common misconception. Mm-hmm. Uh, our staff is pretty trained. You know, I, I've done a fair number of a couple of years of training now and our, I've kind of relayed that back to our hygienists here and our assistants and everybody's, everybody's been really excited and, and on board with it. And has, uh, it's, it's been great. We've had, we've had good feedback that the patients were treated and, you know, in hindsight, I've heard this on some of your previous podcasts, just, you know, you can't treat what you don't know. Mm-hmm. It definitely makes you, the farther you've kind of get educated on this stuff, it makes you think about how many opportunities you may have overlooked where you could have been help for somebody. Um, and some of those people still never found help elsewhere, but now I've noticed things and we've kind of revisited those conversations. And so it's been really cool to get to be a part of kind of that whole process and, and work with a team, you know, getting educated from other providers that have expertise and things that are not necessarily in my scope and picking their brains. And just, just to know it helps a lot. It, it helps you treat patients and view them from a different lens. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I love that. And I, I love the screener that you're giving. It's essentially a screener, right? That you're giving yeah. your 
when they come in and it kind of covers speech and, um, you know, airway and um, dental, you know, you're kind of looking at everything and the tongue and feeding and seeing, you know, are there any red flags that we should be looking at, which I think is so important. And I would really encourage, you know, pediatricians and, um, and other pediatric dentists to be looking at that. And even, even adult, you know, dentists who treat adults, because obviously, like you said, you know, when, when we know better, we do better, right? So we can't yeah. be stuff over all the missed cases in the past because I could do the same thing all day long being a feeding specialist. But, you know, how many kids or even speech, you know, I worked on a lot of like motor speech disorders or kids that appeared as they had apraxia. Now I go, well, how many of them actually had a tongue that may have been tied? You know, that we had to have ruled that out before they could actually get an official diagnosis of something like apraxia. You know, so I could sit here all day long, like racking my brain of like past patients that, you know, if I only knew then what I know now, but you know, when you know better, you do better. So yes, I, I love that message. And, um, yeah, and that's so, and then, so then, you know, in, in knowing better and doing better, there's also, I feel like a responsibility of us to go out and educate. So um, you mentioned you're working with a team. Are you finding that, you're, you're finding a various other professionals that are receptive beyond that myofunctional therapist, which I know, I know you collaborate with myofunctional therapists and speech language pathologists already, but um, you know, who else are you collaborating with and, and how receptive have like pediatricians or ENTs been to education in this space? Yeah, I think I've actually had, I've gained a little more leeway with pediatricians than I have ENTs, surprisingly. And I think maybe part of that is that ENTs have been, to some extent, already treating tongue ties mm -hmm. to their, like, existing level of knowledge. And they've been doing, you know, tonsil and airway stuff already. So it's a little harder to kind of, like, redirect something that's been established for so long. Whereas I think, this is just from my personal perspective, I think, you know, pediatricians have been kind of the navigators of like, what, where does someone go next? And they've been used to that role a little bit more of helping guide patients to the right path. You know, if patients are complaining of airway stuff, if in doubt, I feel like the default was just probably should see an EMT and let them do a further assessment and then find out. So they're used to referring out things that may be in question in general. And so I, I think I've had better progress in terms of like uh, both sides getting more educated on speaking with so many pediatricians sometimes it took a little more little more work legwork like actually physically providing some of the studies from some of the courses that i've learned and the trainings to show them that you know some of them have said do you have any studies or literature proof you know is this all anecdotal which is a common response from some of the older pediatricians is this just like from what you've seen and people are talking about or is this going to be something that's established in the guidelines and i I actually think there was a good, um, something that made me think of one of your, with Dr. Ryan, when you had him on the podcast, he was mentioning, uh, I think, trying to get to a point where there's like a universal assessment tool. Yeah. And I think, I think when, if, it sounds like he's making great progress on it, which is really exciting, because I they do did, think. They published it, actually. They did. And it's, it's a universal, and I'm going to butcher this, um, it's a universal, universal definition of, I think, like, have a tongue tie for babies, like for newborns. I think it's yeah. for the first six months. And of course I have it sitting here, but I, I won't go get it right now. Um, and we can always put it in the show notes so people can reference it, but it basically, yeah, yeah you know, it was like a, con a analysis of um, a variety of specialties and the symptoms they see. And so they basically created how to define a tongue tie in, in a newborn. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's great. And I think with pediatricians, that helps a lot in terms of them trusting us in the process because I think they're really used to like guidelines and what is the standard for the AAP and what do they recommend. Yeah. And for them, it's going to take research and something that's a little more hard and established to mm-hmm. fully take it. So if I when I show them studies here and there, even if it's a really good double blind study, sometimes they're like, okay, so is this like has this reached a level where it's being accepted then your dental guidelines? And I'm like, well, that's a tricky question because it hasn't, it hasn't been taken fully by the AAPD. AAPD has been the pediatric dental guidelines have always been a little vague. Um, they haven't wanted to delve in too much into it. And, um, and even from pediatric dentists, I've heard some of the similar, you know, from, from some of the uh, doctors, just like, where's the proof of this? It seems like it's, the rally and excitement of right now and everybody's just jumping on board and i'm like you know sometimes what you see has some truth to it yes it helps to establish some guidelines and i think it's if you're educating educated on it you'll see that i think it's it's going to get there um i keep joking that you know um dentists pediatric dentists will be like our new pediatricians 10 years from now <laughs> you yeah. be like the main doctor everybody goes to see first because you're going to be looking at all the things <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, we, I think in the past there was more from what I know from some older pediatrician, pediatric dentists. I mean, like on the, on the very back end, there was more pediatrician, pediatric dentist overlap in the training phase. Like hmm. pediatric dentists used to actually do rotations with the pediatricians for a longer period oh, and they weren't necessarily treating, but they were just present while the, not, you know, the assessments were happening and checkups just to see like, how developmental conversations are going. Um, now there's been there's so much information that's come out that I think it's been harder for them to squeeze that into just two to three years of additional residency training. So they're trying to like put more defined markers. So you have to somewhat, I think, push yourself post certification and training to educate yourself. And there's a lot of good stuff out there. I think your, your podcast is awesome. There's so many good courses. I think that are been coming out and I think you just have to have a little bit of self push yeah and it's the same the speech therapy world because while it might be in scope for us to work on myofunctional disorders these orofacial myofunctional disorders um they don't generally teach us this in grad programs and so we had this has all been post-grad for the most part for me um even as a feeding therapist I learned about working with adult feeding cases in grad school and I did rotations and all that fun stuff but I never had any experience with pediatric feeding. So that, that specialty was I mean, thousands of dollars over the past 10 years. And I'm constantly just taking any course that comes my way because I want to know what's the latest research or what's this person's, you know, perspective or take on it. Um, and then in, you know, in, insert the myofunctional therapy courses. Um, when I started taking that to get my certification in that, I was like mind blown. Like <laughs> where has all this information been? Yeah. And the reality is a lot of the feeding therapists that I've learned from teach this stuff too. I just, you know, they don't call it myofunctional therapy. It's more of an oral motor approach and we're still working on a lot of similar things. Um, but when you kind of put it in like the myo package and, you know, and, and there aren't true feeding issues beyond like chewing and forming a bolus, you know, in the oral phase, um, if there aren't feeding issues beyond that, then the myofunctional program is just like, wow, like, why didn't they teach me this in grad school? Um, why yeah. was this not a requirement in my, you know, <laughs> my rotation? So it's, yeah, I think we all need to do our due diligence and kind of figure out 
and stay with the times really and take more coursework post-grad regardless of what profession you're in because things are constantly changing and you know and I think that that's also another reason why Absolutely. people are scary like myofunctional therapy has been around forever but it's kind of gotten an uptick in the past so many years and so I think that's also caused some concern for some medical professionals who are like well I wasn't hearing anything about this five years ago and now in the past three four or five years everybody's just calling themselves a myofunctional therapist. And so, you know, I'm like, I do advise people do their due diligence and, you know, proceed with caution, make sure you know who you're working with, you know, their education. Um, But yeah, I think that people like you and I, who are obviously invested time and money and blood and sweat and tears into all of this, um, we definitely have a, a job ahead of us, but yeah, for sure. Saying illness, most illnesses start in the mouth, so that's why I was like kind of joking that you know that pediatric dentists will be the the new. Yeah, you maybe. <laughs> Just go see your pediatric dentist; they'll fix you. <laughs> I mean, it's the only place we're continuously putting stuff into our bodies, and I think there's a lot to say about. There's nowhere else where you're taking things from outside and bringing new foreign bodies into your system, and I think. Right. I have no doubt, even, you know, diet, food, and all these things, I think, are factors that are going to, yeah, that are increasingly going to Yeah, your bite, how you chew, if you're grinding at night, if you're, you know, um, just all, it's just so how many different systems are at play here. Um, So tell me about um, how you actually treat tethered oral tissues in your office. For seeing infants and newborns who have already been seen by pediatrician, I always you know, we do an assessment first in the office. We make sure we ask all the proper questions to see what what things are being hindered or not being sufficiently done. And is that, do those things cue us in that there's physical restriction that's limiting this ability for them to feed? And so, or is it the technique and other things that could be related to the parent? I think, you know, there's definitely been a shift of a lot of people who said, I didn't produce milk. Obviously, now we're finding a lot of that well, if there's not enough demand, there's not going to be enough production, which we, we've learned that. It's the baby, unfortunately. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> no, the blame is more on the, might be more on the baby than you think. And so in those cases, we always try to make sure they're established um, to have a lactation consultant that they're going to see immediately. Within three days, I tell them to. So they actually come back two days after, um, and I take another look. Let's say if we do a release for, for a newborn. Um and if they don't have a lactation consultant and they've only been seen by the pediatrician, then I make sure that we help them establish a lactation consultant that they can see who's on board with, with this process and what it's going to look like for them. Um, and there's a couple, you know, we're lucky we're in an area where there's some, there's a significant number of pretty savvy groups and the lactation room has a lot of good um, yeah. consultants here and kind of from Arlington all the way out to Loudoun, there's, there's some pretty strong providers, I think, that are pretty educated on this. So, yeah, they have their um, in DC too. They're actually wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So we, so we'll do, if we do the release, then we will do it. We do it with a laser um, for the kids that are under a year of age. Typically there's not going to be any kind of anesthetic used at that age. Usually the you know, nerve sensation innervation is pretty limited still and not fully, not fully developed then. And so uh, we'll use like a little lap pillow if we need to with, between the, the assistant and myself, or we'll use a little swaddle if they, if they're really small. Um, Parents being in the room or not, this is another thing that's, I, would, I think, side note to throw in. I generally just try to give them the information that I think and from my experience, but I, I never 
restrict anybody from being present. I do let them know that they're, they may cry, you know, they're little, it's going to be about 30 seconds. Um, they might cry. And if you feel like them crying is going to be something that's going to trigger changes in your body, then it's probably easier if we do it and bring the baby to you immediately post-op. And so we have kind of a little post, post-op nursing station here, um, like a little nursing chair or couch that they're on and a pillow, an area where they can feed with the parent immediately post-op. Mm-hmm. Um, but I try to make sure all the conversation of like what this is going to look like, who they should see as far as lactation consultant and potentially craniosacrotherapy or body work stuff afterwards and give them kind of providers that I think will be beneficial for them before and answer as many questions as I can before doing it. And part of that is just, it is big kind of emotional change and a thing that they're going to experience potentially that it's easier to kind of get them in a point where their attention is fully in on you. And then yeah. it's going to really shift to the child. You know, right. we become smaller post, post-op. We kind of shrink and are hard to hear, I think a little bit. And that's totally justified. I think that's. Yeah. That's well, I think that. at that point, the parents just like, okay, how, how, what exercises do I do? How do I keep the baby from reattaching? Like, yeah. how do I feed the baby now? Like what, you know, there's a lot of focus on now what? Um, yeah, that's smart to educate them on the other components, the supports, especially beforehand. I love that. Yeah. So we do, you know, we always do, we do need it generally kind of like a need and knee exam on the initial front end. Um, if we think it is something that is going to need benefit from and they are restricted, then we also will practice some of the initial wound healing exercises right then too. If we establish that, yes, this is what the kind of big picture is going to look like, I'll tell them then we'll then for about three weeks, this is what you're going to need to be doing at home. In addition to when you see lactation, it's on, they will kind of reiterate the same thing. Uh, I just don't, if, if they leave, I can only control for sure what happens here. And so I feel like, I'm hoping they're going to go to all the providers and follow through with this plan. But my best way to at least still ensure as good of an outcome as I can is one, I have them come back earlier than I used to. I used to some, I used to wait a week. Now I do it like two to four days. And part of that is because it kind of gives me a chance to manually mm-hmm. help if they, if they've, I don't want to say slides, but if they've had a hard time and it's been a challenge, and things start reattaching and not the most ideal way, it gives me a chance to, on the early side, be like, this is what I'm noticing. And I usually take pre-op and post-op pictures too. So they can see, and I'll usually you know, kind of pull up the picture and say, this is what we saw. We went over kind of the diamond closing and how we don't want things to close this way. We want the diamond to get smaller. And I'm seeing some reattachment. A lot of times they'll say it was, you know, we did it once or twice, but then it was really hard. Like crying and everything make it really challenging. I'm like, okay. So we have another chance now where we can kind of get back to where we were, but what can we do to help kind of going forward? And that could be some of them, if they're closer to one and the, the, you know, the kid is pretty strong and fighting down hard, we will offer them like a little bite pillow to help them stay open a little bit if they want. Um, and just kind of reviewing the techniques and talking about easier ways to do it. Just sometimes the buildup has been so much because they've already been struggling. I think that, it's hard for them to take in like all this information at one time. It's, mm-hmm. it's a challenge. They haven't been sleeping. They're nursing. We're trying to nurse around the clock. Yeah. It's like this endless cycle of exhaustion. Yeah. Um, and then they're concerned. They're so concerned that the kid's not, you know, potentially developing and growing and their weight is not gaining properly. Yeah. So that's, that's for the little ones. Um, for the older kids, you know, if they're over the age of one, a lot of times we'll just put a topical anesthetic from like one to two years of age. And then from two and up, if it's 
to do you know a proper release, especially on the tongues, we'll generally give a little bit of local anesthetic with the topical, uh, and that's because for seeing something anterior, we know we're probably going to be having to release a little farther posterior as well, and so the anesthetic takes like three seconds. Um, just tying into what we said before, I think advantage for a pediatric dental perspective is that we're seeing kind of like wiggly pretty vocal patients all day long yeah. it's our it's our norm and so sometimes they will come and they're like are you going to be able to like get in there and i'm like this is kind of like all our patients everybody <laughs> none of our patients really want to open willingly but we have some methods way to distract them and keep them engaged or distracted and and feeling comfortable um you know, with, we have cartoons playing, other things, maybe to have them hold something so they feel like they're participating a little bit. And local anesthetic, once they get it, usually goes pretty smooth, honestly, after that. It's not not that significant after, I would say. Um, we do we use a water lace in our practice now. We've kind of been dabbling with the idea of a light scalpel also. Um, but some of the studies that have come out haven't been that different. The CO2 has definitely been, like, what's been getting the big push, but the water lace has had pretty similar healing time. Um, and post-op, it's still a laser. It's not a he heated tip. It's it's kind of a water-based uh, erbium laser that's tissue just kind of absorbs the light and fluffs away. Um, so those older kids, if there's speech development age or it looks like there's functional issues going on, then we work with the SLPs. We're, we're try trying our best to stick, stick true to that and so making sure that they go do an assessment with the SLP or my functional therapist beforehand to see what kind of functional restriction they have and if it's actually going to be beneficial. Um, and then is it the right time, which usually it's not the right time. Usually it means that they're probably four to six weeks out or maybe on the short end, two weeks out, depending on what they have going on. Um, it kind of helps, I think, establish what they're getting into and how much they're going to have to be a part of this process also. And they can see that like, we're multiple providers that are investing in this process in them. I think it helps not only for the function, like the actual physical outcome, but I think it does help the parent realize like how much they're going to have to commit to this process too um, and what it's going to look like. So even psychologically, I think, I think that helps. There's always some pushback if we're the second or third place that they've gone looking for help, mm. which becomes a challenge. Uh, I know, you know, Dr. Baxter has talked about this and I think he talked about it in your podcast too like with the really little ones, if their access to care and because of insurance barriers and finances, are they going to be able to follow through with all steps of this? And at what point do you not do the procedure? And at what point do you do it knowing that maybe it will benefit them, but they may not have the means to follow through? Yeah. That I would say is probably the biggest challenge when they, you know, in advance express that, that we went, we did a consultation, we did this, we are just not in position to financially support this entire process. Mm -hmm. This will happen at times, you know, and they're like, but can we still do the procedure? And it's a challenge. I'm more inclined if that happens, I try to resist like 99% of the time to do it, to try to find some other ways to make it work. Unless sometimes if it's a younger, on the younger side where they've not been compensating for as long, then I feel like infant who's not gaining mm -hmm. and is actually malnourished and at risk what is the risk reward here of like, can I be beneficial for them? And it covers them and it doesn't bury them financially, put them in a hole where they can't follow through. 
and the kid may may respond and sometimes it does work and so then you're like you know maybe it could have worked better but the kid gained yeah and helped them out and you're like i i just try to make sure the conversations are full like disclosure on the front end of like right. everybody knows like the expectations it could go one way or it you know may help or may not help at all and i think that's a good point because i um i had michelle Emanuel, who's an ot on the podcast and she talks a lot about optimal timing of release and is a big proponent of you know every child should receive that full body work and you know but i know it is restrict it is cost prohibitive for some families to do feeding therapy and ibclc and pediatric dentist for the release and you know, or whatever, or even if the, let's say the release is covered because they go to a provider, an ENT or somebody who, you know, can run it. Yeah. Through. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it gets very expensive very quickly. And, you know, I think that there are cases where it's very clear this child is going to need more than just a release. And then, like you said, there's other cases where you're like, well, I don't know there, you know, like, can, can this help without, you know, cause our, obviously our goal is do no harm. Right. But mm-hmm. you know, are we doing more harm by not helping the child or right. less, harm? you know, it's like, what, like, where are we on the continuum? And so I think it's a judgment based call in every individual case. And that's why I want, you know, we can never really compare. That's why it's so hard to do research in this area because yeah, for sure. the case is so individualized. So, you know, I think if you truly think you're going to help somebody, despite them maybe not being able to do long-term, you know, uh, therapies afterwards. Um, yeah, I've definitely seen kids where they came to me once for an eval and maybe they worked with the IBCLC a few times. Maybe they went to osteo or craniosacral or something a time or two, but they couldn't afford to continue it. And that child's doing wonderfully, you know, yeah. so it's not to say that every child needs, you know, long-term therapy or, you know, or every one of these therapies. Um, is it ideal to do the whole team approach? And Sure. Absolutely. You know, I'm not downplaying that at all, but I think we also have to figure out like, where are our families, meet them where they're at, figure out what is the best plan for this particular family and child. And like you said, sometimes you're going to see the baby and go, or even toddler, you know, older child and say, yeah, no, I, I can't do this without the proper, you know, pre and post doctor because it's not going to benefit. And it might actually be not like less beneficial than anything, you know, True. than just not doing it at this time. So, um, but I think that comes from a very educated place to be able to say something like that. There definitely are providers out there who just will release anything at any given moment, sure. without any pre or post op, and they're really not, you know, and, and it, it's education on some level. I don't think they're doing it to harm anybody, but you know, we've obviously, we know too much now, so. Yeah, yeah, it makes it hard. Once you, the more you know, the more it makes it hard to, like, digress and go back to all the ways a little bit. You're like, oh, you don't want to, like, what you know. <laughs> but everyone's different, agreed. You got to, I think, questionnaires helps us give a little little glimpse into where they've been and what they've come from. It also asks if they've had a release before, if they've ever been, you know, what areas have they found difficulty and also what have they what means have they pursued to help solve that problem uh, insurance stuff unfortunately is just like an endless battle in general and in dentistry and, and healthcare it always is uh, it's like non-medical people deciding what medical things should be covered and would benefit people so i think giving them the education even if they can go for like one consult if they're like sometimes there's resistance and they're like i won't be able to follow through for like four to six weeks i'm like I think that one visit may just at least help you gain insight into things you can probably, some of it you may be able to help do on your own and learn some techniques or things to look for yourself. So even if you can get some education about it, it's going to help you and your child 
however you proceed from here. Yeah, um, and, you, and there are providers out there who really do want to help. And so if they do an assessment, like, for example, if a, if a baby comes to me and I assess that baby, a lot of these moms are in their fourth trimester. They're emotional. They're exhausted. They, their hormones are just messing with them. And now they've got a baby that they can't feed. And moms beside themselves because baby won't take breast, body, baby won't take bottle. They're trying to keep their supply up. They've got lactation consultants saying do triple feeds. And they're going, what does that even mean? And like, I don't have the energy to do this stuff. And, you know, and like, I've been a mom. I get it. I was there. I had this child. So, um, you know, it's, I try to meet them where they're at on some level too. And if cost is really a factor, I, you know, I always give, you know, that child's particular pre pre-op plan. And then, you know, they're going to carry a lot of that out also post-op. Um, yeah. so when they walk away after doing an eval with me, especially for those newborns, they're getting pretty much a lot of what they need. And then yeah. if they find that, you know, they're not having success beyond the procedure, that's when they come in for further feeding therapy. Um, or they might be able to go to an in, I'm not in network. So they might be able to then go to an in network feeding therapist who does feeding therapy. They've already come to the specialist who works on the tongue tie portion. We can work together. They don't have, you know, it's like they don't have to keep seeing me for that additional work if they can find somebody who's in network. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's, um, we, we try to really meet families where they're at. And even for the older kids, we also will give them their pre-op exercises that are also going to be their post-op, you know, their post-op plan. And we'll talk about active wound care. If they're not getting sutures, if they are getting sutures, no. you know, that looks different. And I try to do that all in that first assessment session so that they're really getting as much information um, at the end of that. And, and I tell them, obviously, I can't tell you if you need a procedure or not. That's, that's up to the provider that I'm referring you to. Um, but hey, if you do get one, you know, do you want to go over the post, you know, what you should yeah. be doing now in the next few weeks and what you would be doing afterwards? Or do you want to schedule another appointment and we can do that then? And I kind of put that in the family's hands because some people are like, no, 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 too much information. We're happy to see you again. And other people are like, no, 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 we're here right now. Let's do this as part of this appointment because it's cost prohibitive to come back to you in a week. Um, and I'm happy to work with you. Yeah. So, you know, and I think a lot of providers, you know, like obviously I can't speak for others, but I think a lot of providers really truly just want to help. And so, you know, yeah. it's not to say that you can do everything in an assessment session, but we can give you enough information to at least educate you and get you prepped for that procedure if that is the next step. Um, yeah. You know, and then obviously with the older kids, like you said, sometimes you're four to six weeks out. Sometimes they really do that need that myofunctional therapy for four or six weeks. And it's not yeah. just two weeks of pre-op, it's four to six weeks of therapy before you're really yeah. prepped. And, and sometimes I tell parents, you know, we're on the line here. We don't really know it. You may need it. You may not need it. We need to do that at the four weeks or so. And usually within four sessions, four weeks of therapy, I can tell if like, we think we need to go to the oral surgeon or the pediatric dentist or the ENT um, for that consult and potential release, you know, or, or refer back to whoever referred them to us in the first place. So, you know, it's, it's so individualized, but that's why I think, like you said, you get that, you get at least go for that initial assessment. So you know, what's in the best interest of your child or yourself um, yeah. and, and kind of stay off those Facebook groups because everybody is so different. Uh, <laughs> I would have to plug in there. Stay off the top of Facebook groups. <laughs> it is, it is tough battle for sure. I think so. You know, one thing we've started to do, and this is, it's definitely different. I think on the SLPs and the, um, or the mile side, you guys have appointments that are like you're with the patient for an hour or so. And sometimes doing these exercises. So from our side, I think uh, this is totally, this may be like 
personal perspective of it a little bit, but because we don't, our procedures, so the amount of time is so minimal. Mm-hmm. I think we have an opportunity to actually, like we can treat more people. And I know that there's a financial barrier through insurances and stuff, but like, so in our practice, we take almost every insurance now. And what I, we do is at the assessment visit, when they come here, even if they're not going to get the procedure or release done, we will give them, this is just goes in with the education part. We will give them an estimate and look in advance for them of their insurance coverage if they do come back to get a release. Mm-hmm. So that way when they go for the functional assessment, they go to see the SLP, they already know, okay, I'm going to this person. When I go there, I already know I'm going to have this much coverage if I need to come back. Mm-hmm. So it helps give them some potential peace of mind knowing yeah. like what, what kind of they're up against financially going yeah. forward and if it's the right time for them and their like life at this point too. I say the thing about like the, the, you guys having them for an hour and us having them shorter because I think it's easy to like as more dentists are going out of network, which I think it's it's the trend because it's you're seeing so many patients. I get it for like a different financial level than all these insurance patients, but this procedure is so short for us to do, and it can be so beneficial. So. From our side, I think in my, in, my, in my office here, I feel like we can do something that takes three minutes of physical working time and maybe 20 minutes of education from our standpoint. Why would we exclude that in our practice yeah. from us? Now, if when they go to you guys, it's totally different. So that, that being said, meaning they can get pretty good coverage from their insurances, some of them completely covered here. That way they can commit some of those means that they do have to the actual full treatment in terms of the therapy and the pre and the post-op it it can help them a little bit in that sense well and one thing i can i'll share on here because anybody who's listening this might be helpful like we do have some practices that do myofunctional therapy with speech pathologists who are also feeding therapists in the area who are good providers Um, and so if we have a family who just absolutely cannot afford it we will refer them there like our goal is to help match you with somebody that meets your financial needs and so if we are not that person that's okay. You know, and, and families come to us and they like it be, like us because we do travel to them or we also like treat out of our homes. So it's just a different experience, I think, for some families yeah. to afford it. So, you know, they come to us and they already usually know that. Um, if they don't, if they just found us on Google and kind of stumbled upon us in their calling and they need, and they absolutely need, you know, in network, like I said, we definitely refer them out. Um, and we're very fortunate to have those providers in the area. But what I want to share is that because so many of us do not take the insurance and because really speech pathologists would get reimbursed like pennies. Um, We wouldn't be able to keep, we would have no business. Um, What we've actually found is that we can, we created an insurance guide for our families and we've basically told them, these are the questions you ask. These are the codes you call about, you know, these diagnostic codes, these procedural codes, this is the, you know, this is what it costs for a session. And they call their insurance and they re- they request, you know, coverage for out-of-network services. With the yeah. Everyone used to call it a gap exception, and now every insurance has changed what they call it, so I no longer call it that. But basically, we say call and ask them to get, if you can get reimbursement for out-of-network services at the highest in-network rate. That is what you are requesting. And I will tell you, 75% of our families that try actually wow. because there are so few providers, speech, speech pathologists that also have my credentials that are certified yeah myologists um they don't have that in network so then legally i think they're tied to 
reimbursing on some level. Um, so we do have a lot of families who have a lot of success if they submit that because we provide super bills. Um, they, they submit it, they get reimbursement, and it really helps take the edge off. It might not be 80% or 100% covered, right. but 60% or 50% or 40% is much better than nothing. So we really 100%. encourage our families to submit. That's great. I think that that all that helps it's to some of these, to some people, I think that educating them and helping them guide them on that is a huge value. It's, it's part of the whole pre-education process, honestly, yeah. for them, because yeah. it lets them know that they are, they might have more options than they think then, you know, that, that's really yes, helpful. Yes, we are private pay and yes, we come to you, but you know, our goal is to help as many children and we, we even treat adults for myofunctional therapy. So, you know, our goal is to help as many people as we truly can and yeah. use the knowledge accordingly. So, you know, it's, we don't want it to be prohibitive to anybody. Of course, there is medic, Medicare or Medicaid laws in yeah. that we are prohibited from seeing those patients, but right. there are practices who take the Medicaid, you know, patients nearby, so we can refer them out and know that they're in good care. Um, so that is, you know, that is a, that's great. a plus. Yeah. Um, great. Yeah. So is there anything else that we haven't covered today that you want to share with us? You know? Yeah, I think, I think maybe just the last part was, I don't know if we got on it too much before, but, um, I think twofold. One was just, how do we communicate with parents when we're running into, and this is probably a recurring theme with other providers too, when we're the first person to inform them that we're noticing some kind of functional restriction or problem. Yes. And we may be a person who's seeing a child that's four um, and they've never been told or they've asked questions and everyone has just said, no, mm-hmm. like kid's fine. The kid's eating, he's talking or he's doing mm-hmm. this. He's sleeping and he's going to preschool presumably fine you know or what about what about i see an anterior tongue tie but it's not that bad (laughs) i've heard that one that's been a recent one that i've gotten a couple times the last few weeks well that's what and that's what the parents will tell when i I, a lot of times if i bring it up at most i think a lot will say yeah they said he had one like a little bit yeah not not much to do a procedure or something yeah and i'm like okay did they did they put their hands in right in the mouth to look and they're like I'm not sure if they did, but you know, he opened and kind of like they took a yeah. look and I'm like, or did they ask about sleep and speech and all the functional things that are exactly. impacted that you're, that's why you're talking to me about this now. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when, and when I, when I have the questionnaire that they've kind of marked some check marks on as they've gone through, it really helps when I start asking those questions, they'll be like, huh. So why, is that why on that paper, you know, it said like stuff about reflux or like, you know, tossing and turning throughout the night. Sometimes I'll ask them, like, do they wake up where they went to sleep? Like, are the blankets all on the floor and their head is where their feet were? Or are they, like, pretty peaceful sleeper? And they're like, well, they cannot, no way they can sleep in my bed. He's, like, kicking, doing flips and whatever. Uh-huh. And I'm like, and they're like, and he snores. It's so cute. <laughs> but he snores like he's 60. And I'm like, you know what? It's cute to the sound, but it's really unfortunately not helpful for him. It's not so cute. It means he's struggling to breathe. Yeah. Um, four years old, you shouldn't be snoring like he's 16. Like, so it's never, works. Nor- never normal to snoring, no <laughs> how old you are. <laughs> yeah. So, so that kind of helps be a gateway. So part that, that being said, I think just, um, I, you know, in healthcare, I think in general, most are taught, you, we never know the circumstances of what other providers saw and what their education level has been. And we were all, 
at some point in a position where we didn't know what we know today. So I think it's still good to, and it's encouraging for your other providers instead of, I think it's good to know who they saw and instead just kind of help redirect and say, you know, these are things we're noticing now. And some of it is because generally people are getting more educated on these things. And so let's, let's see what we can do now to make sure we can help deal with these things. Mm -hmm. Nobody did anything wrong necessarily before because sometimes they'll say, like, well, then I can't believe they didn't say that before. Or why are you the first person telling me that they... Yeah, 100%. That's like every day we run yeah. you know? <laughs> like, you know, if you came to me 10 years ago, I also wouldn't probably have told you that either 10 years ago. So uh, times have changed a little bit and the education is growing and everyone's trying to get more knowledgeable on it. But I do sometimes take note, you know, before I let them know that maybe I see something that someone can catch, I do try to gather the information of like, where have they been for a pediatrician? If they've seen an ENT, who they saw, and then it helps me because I can reach out to some of them and see what is their what is their take on some of these things, and that can give me a little bit of leeway into, hey, maybe I can tell you what I've learned, and maybe they'll take some of it with some skepticism, but maybe it's enough to trigger curiosity for them and them want to go pursue some education on it. And if it does that and it snowballs a little bit, it's great. Even if it doesn't mean they're working with me directly. So if it triggers that thought, then that opens even the smallest door for that other provider to be willing to get educated, then that's awesome. And so when I'm seeing pediatricians, you know, we we do some educational talks already on trauma and dental stuff that we see and when we'd like pediatricians to send them and all these things, fluoride and cleaning. I'm also using that sometimes to say, you know, I've got some new education material that's been coming around and has been coming to the forefront on airway stuff, tongue, lip, all these other things, tethered oral tissues. If you're interested, I'd love to let you know what I've learned on that and see if you guys have questions. And it's sometimes a mix, but the mix probably creates some conversation within that practice also. And so I'm sure sometimes I feel like the IBCLCs have been pretty curious. And then the the pediatricians have been a little bit split. The younger ones who are in the practice are like, very curious and hungry for new knowledge and some who've been in it for 30, 40 years are like, I've been treating kids and everyone's been healthy and been fine and growing and progressing. This might just be a whole new like wave of, of a fad kind of, you know, but when I leave, I think the conversations and the dialogues continue mm-hmm. from what I've gained, which is good. And sometimes the doctors are then discussing with each other and maybe one of the younger doctors, it's not always younger, but just as an example, may go and get educated and take a class and it starts to open open up yeah. kind of the perspective. And that practice might be who that doctor, that might be the doctor that's the future of that practice at some point anyway. So um, we've also invited them to come to our practice. So I, any of the providers that I see their patients, I always tell them, if you're, even, if you're in the area and it's a day where you're doing something else and you're like, oh, I've referred there, 100%, I feel like you should come in and see this see the space and maybe some of the instruments and tools and yeah. what you may be referring a patient into, what type of environment. I think that's because so smart. Yeah. It, 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 you know, for that, me, that that where you're stuff. referring, right? Like that's the people that you're referring to. Absolutely. I'm a hundred percent. Before yeah, I refer I, anywhere, I totally go to that office and it's, I've either had the experience of being a patient or taking my children there before I will. And, and I'll even, I don't joke. This is not a joke. I will just set up an appointment, even if something is not wrong with me, because I want to go and experience. Like, who are you? What are you like as a provider? What is your bedside manner like? Like, yeah. 
sensitive are you to hearing why, you know, why I'm even coming? And if I share functional concerns, but you're not seeing anything, like, how do you respond to that? Like, do you refer me out or you just kind of brush me off? You know, I'm really looking for those things. And, and that is how I have vetted my providers. And it's funny, I even hire in my practice with my children. Like, I've had my children present at every in-person interview I've ever done because how you interact with a child tells me a lot about you. <laughs> 100%. And that's exactly, I think that's part of them coming here. So if I've, you know, we have, we advertise and do things and we get referrals sometimes and I'll see a doctor who's referred for something maybe non, non-related to tethered oral tissues, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I'll see the patient and send them back. At some point I'm always like, I either want, I hope that that person comes by here. And if not, I will just go by their office, you know, and I, yeah. I just want them to have confidence to know when they're going to send somebody to me that like, that I want them to feel assured that it's something yeah. that they can back confidently, yeah. you know, me too. That I want to be on the receiving end of something to let them know, Hey, I'm going to do my best for this child and this person. Yeah. And are we aligned? There might be some difference of perspectives, but it helps, you know, I'm personally speaking, this has been a good kind of re- reinforcement of that. There's always stuff that we don't know and there's new mm-hmm. things coming out, new education. Yeah. And in 15 years, they might be a whole other level to this of, you know, nutritional stuff. And we were talking about what you put into your body. And I think that's another one that's kind of brewing underneath all of this. That's gaining genetics and all the, yeah, food industry. Yeah. yeah, And so I, I feel like I, I never tell people like, I almost never say that, like not that that's impossible, whatever they've told me they've heard elsewhere. I'm like, there's a possibility of that. We got to just take all the information we know and try to help guide you in a way that might give you the best outcome. But I'm not opposed to there's another possibility of something else. Mm-hmm. Itself, well, and it's, you know? it's so, a good point because, like, the more we learn, the more we realize we have still more to learn, the more we don't yet know. And um, I think a really good tip for some people who are out there who are struggling to build teams, like, if you do get a referral, even if it's not for tethered oral tissues and, like, you're a practice, you're a pediatric dentist who obviously does other things, um, yeah. like, tethered oral tissues is not what you do all day, every day, totally. then – Yeah, I think there's a lot of value in reaching out to whoever is referring to you, whether it be a parent or a provider or whoever, and just reaching out and saying, you know, thank you for that referral. And what is it, you know, what do you do? Or what other, what other people do you know, you know, like who, what are the teams you work with? Because you never know who you're going to meet until you make that effort to network. And I think that, you know, the providers and the parents who are referring to practices like ours have a lot of value. And they're clearly the people who are out there talking about, you know, you know, oh, this is a pediatrician we go to, or oh, this is a pediatric dentist we go to, this is a speech pathologist we see, or the myofunctional therapist, and so on and so forth. And so um, for those people who are really, because I know a lot of people struggle to build their myo and their pediatric dentist and so and ENT teams that really get, are airway-centric, sometimes you have to shape that team. Sometimes you have to mold that team. And so if you find a provider you really like and that you kind of jive with and you're on the same page on a lot of things, even if they're not in this space yet, you never know. They might, like you said, you're going out there and you're just kind of planting the seeds and they yeah. might go, Oh, Hey, yeah, that's actually something I really want to learn more about. Well, Oh my gosh, like what a beautiful thing. You can now like work on this together and kind of create your own protocol, if you will. Um, which sometimes that's even a better way to approach it than, you know, finding people who are already yeah. kind of set in their ways. So hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. That kind of goes back to the, you know, the pediatrician and ENT that I was saying is that absolutely. It's similar, similar dynamic, you know, for myself personally, I did, I had to go through that a little bit here. So I, I was a little conservative on like, at what point was I going to be willing to like 
full on reach out and also be willing to be a provider for that, you know, a release provider. So I was like trying to just do so much. I want to feel like the 110% educated before I'm willing to say I could be someone of help, which maybe not always necessary. I think I could have probably leaned on a couple of other providers, you know, SLPs, Myos, just to gain some insight from them because they're more open to teaching and collaborating than I think I anticipated before. Well, and I will say, 50% of the people who are in the speech role don't believe this exists either. It's, we're not, you know, it's not like a industry-wide accepted thing, even though yeah. our national organization, ASHA, has now added myofunctional therapy into the requirements. And so everybody yeah. in their grad programs will now have to go through a myo course in grad school, um, you know, and it's being taught. There's still people out there telling us that like oral motor therapy and myofunctional therapy is like totally made up and not a thing and pseudoscience and yada, yada, whatever. So we get it in our field just as much as every other. And I think I almost forget to share that because of like how I'm, I'm surrounded with so many wonderful people who like in my space and really, you know, get it. So, you know, but yeah, I know it's, it's an issue across every industry. Yeah, it's it's been good to, I think, what you said before I, is kind of what I've tried to follow too a little bit and just reaching out to the providers and um, the SLPs in, in this area and in, in Virginia, definitely there's some excellent providers who really consist constantly are like getting more educated on this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I feel pretty lucky that we're, we're in a pretty yeah. affluent and like, you know, I would say airway educated area that's, that's, on, on the higher end, I think generally, which is, which is awesome. And, and they're also open to, I think like educating each other, which has been great. All everyone that I've met with has been like, we can, they can come here. I can go there. If we want to just like, even them learning about what I do here and then being willing to teach me and educate me on like what exactly is going to happen when a patient goes to them for me, you know, if you want to come and see how we go, what our process is and what we go through and, exercises we give your patients it helps me for the same way of knowing the provider it helps me know what this patient's about to go through and also just feel more confident in the outcome so it's exciting i think little bits this podcast is awesome because i think it's it's helping (laughs) tap into more yeah and you've had so many good people from like kind of different angles on this stuff which is which has been excellent and i've been fortunate to meet some i know now know some of the people on the podcast so Jennifer Tipograph is another one who I, we actually went to dental school together. So it was like really cool to get to hear her. Yeah. We were, we were yeah, I grew up together. I don't know if you know that, but she and I oh, no. grew up together. And now that's, she's my dentist and she's awesome. dentist, which everybody knows who listens to the podcast because yeah. know, all the time since she's doing Lily's ALF and my DNA, but yeah, so cool. small world, right? I mean, I guess we yeah. don't live that far away from each other, me being in Bethesda and you're in, you know, Northern Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's cool though. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I also, you know, I, I think just not, you got to kind of have a little bit of an open mindset of just that there's, there's, there's stuff that we don't know yet. And there's things yeah. that are going to change slightly. And there's probably going to be some guidelines or some structure to this, like Dr. Ryan's stuff that came out is probably going to be something that becomes a little more normal in terms of, are we all assessing the same way? Are we using the same classification systems? Those things will probably help bridge some of the gaps, I think, between the different providers because people are using one classification system, some are using the other, and they're like, are we seeing the same thing as a class two and this classification, the same as a two or a three from this angle? Mm-hmm. And so I think having an open mind is big. I, I've, this is like a 
just to add to kind of the holistic and natural stuff, my my mother-in-law is actually an aerospace engineer who's also now an integrative functional nutritionist. So like oh, total change. Um, so she's she's gonna doctorate in that. And so she's now in a space and it's called Echo and it's in Northern Virginia where she's doing a lot of the testing for and I think Jennifer talked about some of these stuff, Dr. Tippograph talked about it, just how the body is responding to certain chemicals yeah. and certain levels of nutrition and it's it's individualized to that person. Um, yep. So that I think helped keep kind of open my mind already because she's kind of in with a lot of the new, a lot of the new thought process and kind of stuff. And they have someone who does, you know, craniosacral therapy there. They have actually some psychologists and other therapists in their practice. And she does the nutritional stuff, which she, I, she's really interested in some of the educational stuff that I've gone through because she's always bringing up, well, what do you think about? The nutrition and how that's factoring in the things that you're doing mm -hmm. and the materials you're using as yeah. a dentist and like what type of medications you're using you do you think and i'm always like i'm sure everything is a factor i i think yeah. how do we how do we know the right levels of what we're using and all those things she's very big on so it's been kind of like an unexpected blessing that i've, yeah. I've had them doing a lot of kind of front end so called i would say different type of kind of healthcare perspective and gut, you know, gut bacteria and all these things. And now I've kind of delved in from a different angle of stuff of, of airway and growth and development and stuff. And so it's exciting and it's cool. And I think it's cool to see that I think, yes, the online world of the online groups can be a little misleading in the Facebook stuff. Every once in a while I see some good stuff and I see yeah. providers chime in and they put such a good valid post. And I'm like, that's awesome. Yeah. I'm happy someone came into this, you know, 30 post thread and like, yeah, it's like I have to remove me. myself or I don't sleep, but I guess I feel like I have to like, you know, save the world. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> like, but there's people in there who are doing good stuff. Like therapists who are like, please go see this person or yeah. please don't diagnose in photos or please don't diagnose each other's kids. And so there is a lot of good information in those. I shouldn't downplay the groups completely, but yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's great. It's exciting. And I'm, I'm kind of excited to try to, be a part of this wave and just just get to tap into helping more more kids and and people from early i think those first couple of years of life are so challenging already uh, yeah. from a parent side so if your kid is also going through challenges it just makes it more challenging on the family as a whole i think and so yeah things can be smoother and happier and people get more rest and nutritional development i think it's in the scheme of life it's it's all has an impact i think i mean i'm sure Obviously, the airway stuff is a big factor. I think feeding and nutrition and airway and mm -hmm. um, all of these are just things that probably play a bigger role that we still don't even know how big of a role. I think it's still. Yeah. So, so is your mother-in-law doing research or like what? No, she did a doctorate in. She's a she's a doctorate in. So she's an aerospace engineer. She has her company worked for NASA and still does part time. Is contracted with NASA now. She's also fully opened her own functional nutrition practice so she does um, like testing to see allergies even kids some of the kids with special needs depending on what they've diagnosed with to see what okay. levels of different and different and all that yep, yeah. exactly and i have all she's giving me all sorts of cool mm -hmm. cool gadgets and tools and, yeah <laughs> yep, the sensitivity levels and i've taking all these supplements that she's giving me and i just like That's cool. it sounds amazing and it and i'm taking them and i'm like i think it's working i don't know you yeah. know 
And so how are we responding to the metals? Even some of the, she's gotten educated on a lot of like the dental material stuff and how our patients are responding. And is there fluctuations in their body that are occurring due to the materials in their mouth? Yeah, and how are they and Dr. T should like circle back and have lunch together because this is all, this is exactly what she does as a natural holistic dentist. It's pretty yeah. Cool. Yeah, um, it's cool. I think she, you know, Echo is a, I'll send it to you at some point too. Their, their practice would be a cool, if there's ever any kind of collaborative stuff, I feel like they'd be a good resource in this region for. Um, and it made me think of the CHIRP study. So I don't know if she's associated with that at all. Or have you heard of that through documentation? I've heard she just brought that up to me, actually. Yeah, so yes. it's um, Documenting Hope is a sponsored project by Epidemic Answers, and I'm, like, totally putting in a plug for them, and I don't even, like, I, we heard, Jen and I, Dr. Yeah. Tanner, heard them speak at, at um, the Airway Conference, Bronson's Airway Conference, uh, earlier this year, and so they're doing this CHIRP study that is basically a comprehensive online survey that parents complete, um, or guardians, caregivers, through kids aged 1 through 15, and it's, um, it's completely confidential, and names and everything are removed before they do the analysis, but they're basically looking into, you know, I guess they're giving a free comprehensive health report for the child as a result participating in the study, but they're basically looking at how do we keep our children healthy in a toxic world? Because we all know that, you know, all these organic, healthy foods that we're eating, it's the best thing we can do for ourselves, but they're still not as nutrient dense or healthy as they were 20 years ago because yeah. of to, you know, all of our fields. And, and we also heard, um, uh, gosh, I'm going to forget his name, Dr. Zach. Oh, I can't think of anything was last name, but I'll put it in the show notes. Maybe I should have him on the podcast. Um, we heard a, he's a was a pediatrician and has gone completely into his own practice and research facility. His own his own research facility, but he's out there helping farmers actually take back wow. their, like fund their the project to take back their own farm so they don't have to use these awful chemicals so producing their foods and then. You know, we also want to have farmers whose surrounding farms don't have that because then it's in the soil, even if you as a farmer choose not to use it, like what's around you. Um, yeah. So it's pretty cool. Oh, Zach Bush. It's Dr. Zach Bush. Um, okay. he's, he's like out in Virginia somewhere, like further out in Virginia, but um, really cool, like what's happening and what's going on. But obviously, I think it's going to take some time before we really see the impact of it, unfortunately. Um, but yeah. <laughs> definitely a conversation that I think we're going to start hearing more and more of and something that needs to happen because yes, we're all, you know, working on the medical side of things here, but if we're not fueling our body with the best possible energy and healthy produce and products and meats and everything, you know, what, what good is the rest of what we're doing if we are not, you know, functioning at our best. So yeah, yeah, it's definitely an important piece of the puzzle that, um, yeah, we definitely, we should, maybe I should have your mother-in-law on the podcast. I know, actually, oh my gosh, she would be, she would be so. I would totally she, do that. Make a connection. She loves, she loves talking about this stuff. It's like her. Yeah, I love to hear about like her research. I mean, she's literally a rocket scientist who's now oh, turned cool. into a functional nutritionist. So she's unbelievably smart. And this was like a passion of hers. And she, she went through some health stuff on her own and it helped, I think, shape her perspective of like, what she's putting in her body and how has that impacted her treatments that she had done medically yeah. to help with her own stuff has, has impacted her. And I think she's noticed a lot of stuff herself and she treats some clients now doing some kind of nutritional testing and stuff and trying different um, vitamins and mm-hmm. uh, f- the levels and how they're responding and allergy testing type stuff. And she's seen, she's seen some awesome results. So, yeah. so it's exciting. 
And I, some stuff that she's tested for me that I'm like, I eat anything. I don't have any known allergies and whatever. She will tell me like, you're having this, this kind of response to these things and these yeah. things. So you probably try this. And I yeah, do. No, I did the, these tests like right after I was done nursing Lily, my, my now four-year-old, I did the um, MRT, the mediator release test yep. and did the leap diet and everything. And, um, quite honestly, I cut most of those foods out that were in my like yellow red zone. I cut them out for like several years because I just felt better without them. And I've just really yeah. been trying to add them back in. Um, and some of them, my body responds okay to, and some of my, that my body doesn't. And I know immediately, but it was, it was one of the most interesting things I did for myself and, and our bodies. What I've learned, and I'm not, I'm not a specialist in this by any means, but what I've learned is that um, our bodies can change over time, especially based on what you're eating, how frequently you eat something. And so sometimes you need to pull things out of your diet or you need to cycle them in, cycle them out. And yeah. uh, I'm definitely a creature of habit. Like I find what I like and I just eat the same thing. Too. It's easy. So, Me you know, too. I'm like, it's healthy, it's easy. And then I'm like, but actually, no, I'm hurting my body because I need to be like changing things up. So, um, yeah, the whole thing is so fascinating to me, but yeah, I 100% believe that is a very large piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Well, exciting. I'm, I'm yes. so excited to get to talk, talk this out and be a part of this kind of movement and get to yeah. talk to you. It's been awesome. I appreciate it. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Next we'll get your mother-in-law on. And- <laughs> awesome. I'm going to let her know. She's going to be Yeah, on. please do. <laughs> I'll at least connect you guys. And I think you guys are both working with people and tapped into providers that it would be probably just a good resource for each other. I think she, she would love to be a part of it. And they've hosted a couple events in their space where providers of diff- different kinds of providers and um, even like an emergency medical like room physician has been a part of their team a little bit and um, right. it's helped gain some traction of getting different, different healthcare perspectives and how these things are impacting all facets of life, I think. Yeah. So it's amazing. So yeah, I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you All so right. much. Good talking to you. Yeah, talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Mayo Tots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan. And you can head over to untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes where you can also also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. Big shout out to Dana McKay, podcaster extraordinaire, for editing and helping me keep this podcast alive.